When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Tell our good friend M. Carpenter, one of our favorites, one of the smartest people we know, great writer, senior editor at ordinary-times.com. Make sure you go check out all her work. She usually does Wednesday Ritz, but she's been a little busy saving the world in her day job. So that's been a little spotty, but she did do one last week. Thank you very much for showing up to work. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, that's a joke. I'm kidding. Uh, let's talk about that law school experience for just a second. Law school has always been prohibitive. It's always been tough to get into. It's always been extremely expensive. Are we reaching kind of a critical point, though, where maybe it's gotten too inclusive, too hard to get into, and too expensive? Um, too expensive, yes, I think it is definitely too expensive. I, uh, education costs, or no, not the cost, but the cost to the students, not necessarily the cost of providing that education, goes up all the time, goes up every year. Um, and in law school, just by way of example, when I finished college, I had about $16,000 in loan debt for my four years of undergrad. Uh, my first year of law school, for which there are no Pell Grants, um, my first year's debt from law school was 16000 And I know it's probably a lot more than that now. Obviously, in 20 years, that's gone up. Um, and I guess, you know, they expect that once you graduate from law school, you're, you know, you're going to be in a position to get a well, well-paying job and to pay those loans back with ease. Um, I'm one of those who did not go to big law, go to a firm directly out. In fact, I started out in a small town, small county prosecutor's office making about $30,000 a year. Um, so it's not the same experience for everyone. So uh, yeah, I think the cost is is a bit expensive. And so depending on what you plan to do with your law degree, and if you want to be a public defender, which I've said on here before, in my opinion is the highest calling of a lawyer. If you want to make a, your career in public defense, you're you're never going to make those huge salaries and, and pay back these exorbitant loans. So um, I think that's a good argument then for some debt forgiveness or programs for people who take those types of jobs um, and aren't making the big, you know, six figure incomes. Um, as far as how much gatekeeping should go on for law school admissions, I think the best way to weed out people who shouldn't be there is your first year of classes. That first year, your 1L year is notoriously difficult and, and some people say is designed to weed out those who don't have what it takes. 
uh, yes, it's a different, it's a different way of learning. It's a different type of education than people are used to. Um, Takes some adjustment. You definitely have to study. There's not as much ability to kind of skate by with uh, your your intelligence without actually studying a lot so a lot of people don't make it don't come back at the end of your first year your second year a lot of people who were there the, the year before are gone um, unfortunately that means they may have been left with a year's worth of law school debt that they now may not have the money to pay back so it, it's um it's a hard balance see this is the thing people talk about lawyers talking to him, carpenter our friend this is the same problem every other career field is currently having where the promise is, well, you get your college degree and then you get a great paying job. Well, the promise is you go to law school and you get an even better paying job. But the reality is there's only so many of those better paying jobs and there's a lot more lawyers coming out of law school than there are those great paying jobs, right? So the there's a problem with the pipeline system of saying, hey, go to law school and get a great job. I'll just take all this student debt. Law school, it seems like the law school, if anything, it may be even more predatory with the lending than with just the regular college stuff that we're seeing, isn't it? I think so. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't think attention is paid to those who are not going to to come out of the um, out of law school with a, a, a huge job. There is, you know, there's a lot of deferments and there's um, income based repayment options and, and a lot of uh, ways in which, you know, your loan payments can be adjusted, um, but they all have their downfalls. You know, the, the lower your payment, the longer you're going to be paying and the more interest you're going to be paying. Um, so there's a lot of to, to, of considerations there. Um, you know, a lot of lawyers, when they hear people talk about, you know, they're, they want to go to law school, you always hear, oh, don't do it, don't do it. And, and they'll try to talk you out of it and say, you know, do something else. I would never do that. Um, I love, I love being a lawyer. I love going to law school. I think it's a, it is a noble profession. I don't care what you say, Andrew. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you Always do it so I can lean on you and I don't have to do it. So yes, you, I'll agree with you. You make a lot of lawyer jokes at my expense is why I say that. Um, but I think it's an, it's a good profession. It's a noble profession. Everyone hates lawyers until they need one and, and, and they actually get help from one. So I think it's, um, I don't, I don't want to dissuade people from going to law school. I don't want to encourage people to take on um, $200,000 worth of debt for their, their legal education. I certainly did not, uh, and I know a lot of people want to go to the top tier law schools. So you know, it helped to help them get that high paying job, and and, and it might work out for them. But you can go to a, um, a school, a perfectly perfectly good law school like I did, WVU. It's not uh, Harvard, it's not Yale, but I'm doing just fine. And I know you know I have classmates who have who went on to firms and, and are doing very well. So I think that, you know, you don't have to go into six figure or, or double six figure debt um, to get a law degree. You can do it, you, you know, adjust your expectations, adjust your standards. You can do well and, and not incur that much debt. It's everybody thinks that you're going to, um, every lawyer has $250,000 worth of debt. That's not the case, certainly not the case for me and uh, probably not the norm. So I think that you hear the loudest, most egregious tales and egregious stories, but I think that it's still, it's doable. Um, do I wish that I had less debt? Yes, I wish I had uh, been able to pay uh, more of it 
at the time. A lot of law schools, WVU included, discourage or prohibit you to have a job while you're in law school, especially if you're a 1L in your first year, you are not allowed to work outside of uh, maybe perhaps a work study job at the law school. So, you know, those are all things that, that go into it. And obviously, um, I didn't have the ability to pay for it out of pocket. So do I wish that I could do it all over again and skip law school? Absolutely not. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell Show. Okay, it's all over the news headlines. People have been talking about it. We're going to talk about it with our friend, Sean Timian. Did I get it right? I was practicing. Tima. 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 Ah. See, I'm a hillbilly. We can't do those vowel sounds. Phonics was the worst thing that ever happened to us. I swear. Sean Tima, another great Young Voices contributor. We'd love to have them. Uh, he's a chief of staff for Young Americans for Liberty. He has been all over media, lots of appearances. Sir, thank you for the time. Deep from the heart of Texas, appreciate you joining us. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So the rumor mill has been going and going and going and going and going. I'm kind of confused as to whether we're still in the trial balloon stages or the assaging stages or where we're at with this. But we apparently are going to get some kind of a student debt relief something from President Biden somewhere in here. Uh, be that a change of pace or a change of subject or whatever, it seems like something's going to be coming out. Uh, is that your read as well? Because it keeps going, the numbers change. Now we're looking at maybe a $10,000 thing. Where do you think we're at in the news cycle on this? Because this has been allowed for a couple of months now. Yeah, well, we know that the left likes to dangle student loan debt relief whenever their poll numbers are dwindling with young Americans. They've never acted on it, but times may be so desperate for Biden and the rest of the Democrats, that they may actually bite on this one and upset some of their friends in the higher education cartel with Sally May and the banks and the CEOs of these loan collector companies. But it's important to remind people of two things when it comes to the student loan debt crisis. It's that uh, maybe even three things. We'll see how many I list off. But one, it's it's wrong to rob Peter to pay Paul, right? And simply put, we shouldn't be asking blue collar working Americans or Americans who did not go to college to pay off the debts of people who went to Ivy League schools or got gender studies degrees, it's just not fair. And two, canceling student debt does nothing to actually reduce the cost of higher education. In fact, it incentivizes you know, the higher education cartel to continue these student loan programs and to continue raising the cost of college beyond a reasonable, affordable amount. So in this debate, it's important we bring those two things up. It's not fair and it's not going to solve any problems now let's i because i talked to our progressive friends as well the problem that the biden administration is going to have on a practical level is this ten thousand dollar amount seems to be a a unique bidenism of this seems to be ticking everybody off because the people that want it doesn't think it's going to be enough the people that don't want it at all think it's too much 
this seems like it's almost like you're it's like they're searching for an answer that's not going to make anybody happy that almost makes it even a worse policy doesn't it I agree. And I don't put it past Biden and his advisors to go up with the world's most milk toast option. That just seems like how they do business. But you're right. I mean, for people that are in $100,000 of debt, $10,000 is, is just crumbs. Um, and it's still going to cost us a heck ton of money that we do not have as a country. I mean, we just printed $5 trillion over the last two years. And you see what that is doing to the price of gas and the price of food. I mean, there should be a robust debate uh, and a huge burden of proof to overcome if we are going to spend any more money or print any more money. But you're right. I don't think it's going to make anybody happy. Um, it's not fair <laughs> still, and it will do nothing to reduce the cost of higher education, which is the bigger problem in the first place. John Tima joining us. Okay, let me throw you some of the counter arguments and let's just work through them here. Uh, the first one is kind of the common sense one that sounds good on the service of well, anytime you do debt relief to people, that's money that would go back into the economy or would go back into other things. What do we say to that argument? Yeah, well, you have to remember where the money is coming from, right? Inevitably, this money is going to be either taxed from people, which that money could have went into the economy, right? Or it's going to be printed, which is pumping up the cost of every piece of the economy that you're looking to buy. So it's a wash at the end of the day if you're raising the price through inflation and printing or you're taxing people out of their money you know, just to have that money being put into the economy. It's a broken window fallacy. All right. The other uh, thing that comes up with this is the demographics of who get this. Uh, the argument is, well, student loan debt would help the poorest Americans, but by the numbers, uh, this is actually a lot of middle uh, class and up folks that also have student loan debt. Not that a hundred thousand dollars of debt, even for somebody that's pretty wealthy, that's a lot of money. That's crippling debt by anybody's standards. We have sympathy for those folks, but what do we say to that argument? Yeah, well, the data shows the majority of student loan debt is owned by people with master's degrees and doctoral degrees. So if you are that smart to get out there and get that level of a higher education. And you should be smart enough to know how to pay on that debt yourself instead of relying on people who made a fiscally responsible decision to not take on massive debt, to go to trade school, to uh, pay off their debt. Uh, you know, So this isn't the grand subsidy for the poor that the left likes to pretend it is. This is subsidizing the Ivy League elites and the uh, arguably or uh, accordingly to the, to the degree standard, the smartest people in society. Now, let's take the other end of that for a second. You, you're a smart guy. You've seen these numbers already. The fact of the matter is something like 60% of Americans don't do any college whatsoever of any kind. At least they don't have a, a degree or a certificate attaining level of it. On the political side of this, 60-40 issues, the 40 side is usually not the edge of that on the political issues you want to get on. I understand the arguments folks are making. I'm sympathetic to people that want debt relief. But if you're on the wrong end of a 60-40 split, that just doesn't sound like it's going to be as politically advantageous as people are pitching it to me. I'm just talking straight on the numbers of it. Does it strike you that way, too? Yeah, according to a poll done by the Washington Examiner, you know, it's 60% of people polled said it would be unfair for those who didn't go to college to have to pay off the debts of those who did. You know, just about half of the American public, according to this poll, also believes It'd be unfair to those who took on debts and paid them off to then have to subsidize other people. So it's not like a you know 90-10 split. It's not like something that's going to energize you know the vast majority of Americans. This is going to make some people thankful. It's going to tick off a heck of a whole lot of other people 
And, you know, what are you really left with at the end of the day if you're the Democrats, if you're Biden? You're, you still got young people who are upset at the cost of living. You still got young people who are upset about a whole other variety of issues. So is it really worth, you know, screwing up our economy and ticking off, you know, half of the American public to maybe get the youth vote up just a little bit? I don't think so. Yeah, and I'm not sure this is aimed at the youth vote anyway. I think this is aimed at some the donor class, for lack of a better way, but that's just my opinion. Uh, let me ask you a couple of things that you touched in on your piece, because you didn't just complain about it. You also offered some solutions. Here's a solution that I think would be, this would be a regulatory solution. This would be a really quick thing to do. I think it's the most common sense way to do it. Uh, talk about the bankruptcy option, because we have protected student loan debt from bankruptcy. And I'm saying protected in air quotes here, because that's a fallacy. Why can't, why is this the only debt in America that people can't discharge through bankruptcy, which is a fair process, which lets people fairly deal with their creditors and get some actual relief that's court mandated and protected, but not if you're a student loan debt. That doesn't make sense to a lot of folks. Why can't we just go that route? Yeah, well, one interpretation of the golden rule is uh, he who has the gold makes the rules, right? So you got a lot of lobbyists from Sally May, a lot of lobbyists from the banks who made it so difficult for people to declare bankruptcy on their student loan debts. So that way the lenders could keep lending it out and having no repercussions if the loans didn't pan off. So you relax some of those laws, you allow people who may have been, you know, arguably, you know, put into this predatory system. And I'm, I'm willing to call it a predatory system. That doesn't excuse the fact that we can just wipe all these loans off, but it's set up for a lot of people to fail, right? If they actually had to take on the risk of uh, these lenders of saying, hey, we might lose our investment on these loans if these people just aren't making enough money or they made a poor decision. They went to study underwater basket, leaving their $100,000 in debt, uh, then maybe they would be less likely to actually give out that mass sum of loans in the first place. Um, so simply put, if you put the lenders on the hook and you allow people to declare bankruptcy, that has an effect where there's less loans going out there's less loans going out. The cost of college goes down. People can actually afford it without drowning in debt. Seems like a win-win to me. Yeah, Sean Tima joining us. Uh, I'm a practical guy. If we had a perfect world system where people sat down and discuss things, you know, even though I don't think it's the greatest thing in the world, I would trade an X amount of student loan debt to reform the system. I think that would be a good fair trade. But I think the repercussions here is if you don't reform the system first and then you forgive the debt, you're just increasing the predatory nature of the debt system. Am I wrong to think that way? Because I know even some pretty hardcore conservative people are like, look, if you can reform the system, you take the short term hit to get the long term benefit. I, I'd write off 30, 40, 50, whatever X amount of dollars to fix the system that's billions of dollars of predatory debt. But I don't see that here. I see something that might perpetuate the problem. Is that how you see it? Yeah, the top priority has got to be getting the cost of college down. And you can only do that by taking approaches that are going to hurt, you know, the elite class, uh, you know, in D.C. Um, and I really think, you know, and people say this is bold. People say this will have repercussions. But I really think the only way that we have a quick fix on this or something that makes a huge impact is if you take the root of the problem right at the heart of the problem. And that is cutting off, you know, these federal student loans for several years until colleges have to readjust and figure out what the heck is going on with their prices. Because they, they're able to jack up these prices because they know the government is going to take on the footing of the bill. 92% of all loans are federally guaranteed. That is unlike any other uh, free market system that's out there. Any other business can't afford to run on that. They have to set the prices to normal rates. 
but colleges get a free pass and administrators get all this extra money to spend on, on frivolous things and banks are making hand over fist. I don't think that's fair to the student. So you take out the student loan program altogether. Colleges have to trim the fat. They have to reset the normal. Then maybe we can actually start having the conversation about what to do to make amends from there. But you've got to get the cost of college down first. So legislatively, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon for a lot of reasons, because let's face it, both parties, a lot of them are higher education, most of them Ivy League educated in a lot of different ways. So let's talk about the other end of it, something we can maybe do. I think the real um, insipidous part of this thing is, and you touched in on, on your piece, and even people who are for student loan debt admit this is the problem. We are funneling kids into the college system that have no business going to college, and I don't mean they're not able to, they just don't want to or whatever. But this idea that every single kid has to go to college and therefore every single kid has to pay into the college system, I think that's where the real root of this problem is. That's something that's a cultural change, which is a hard change to do. It's a structural change in secondary education. That's also something we don't need legislative to do. That's something that can start being changed as a mentality. Where do you see that we can go in that direction in some practical ways? Yeah, it's it's on us. It's on business leaders. It's on parents. It's on families to just resist the uh, poor financial decision for a lot of these folks. Um, you know, you think of my cousin, right? My cousin's an incredibly gifted, uh, you know, a, a tradesman. He, he's studying to be an electrician now, but he went to two community colleges, racked up some debt and realized, hey, this isn't the place for me. I'm going to go to trade school. Um, he instinctually wanted to go to trade school, but he thought that his ticket to prosperity and that the right thing to do was to go to college, right? In liberal arts, because that's what he was told was a marker of success. Um, and there's no, you know, one legislative bill or, you know, one statement from a president that's going to change that. I mean, that's just got to come from a bottom-up solution, you know, from family saying, you know what, it's okay if my kid does not go to college. Because you look at the data, people who go to trade school, people who take alternate paths, when you factor out the student loan debt, when you look at the starting salaries of a lot of these jobs, they end up evening out with a lot of liberal arts degrees without the debt. So we just got to be able to continue to share that information and make that a cultural norm, person by person, leader by leader, until we start to see a cultural change. Now, folks will argue, Sean Tima joining us, that you need to keep up with high tech stuff. But the fact of the matter is companies like even like an Amazon and Google, they're starting to have in-house recruiting now where they're bringing people straight in. They're doing in-house training and quote unquote college in-house so that they have those employees from the go it's almost the old apprenticeship starting to reemerge because even these major companies are like, Hey, these, these degrees are all kind of running together and they're not telling us anything about what kind of employee we're getting. So the old argument that to be high tech, you got to go to college. It's not holding up. And I think the other thing that's not getting talked about is you just spent two years telling kids they could do school online. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of kids are going to like the flexibility. They don't like it for high school because of the social stuff. A lot of those community college kids, a lot of those trade school kids, I think you're going to see an explosion of online learning or high, probably more specifically hybrid learning where they're like, hey, I can do this cheaper on the road, plus I can mm. work or I can work on my online stuff or I can work on my influencing or whatever the case may be. 
I think there's going to be a cultural change long before there's an institutional change. And maybe that's how this starts to get changed a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And that's, you know, a silver lining of COVID. We have to look for those silver linings. And one of those is realizing, hey, I can progress, you know, in my uh, quote unquote necessary, you know, education behind the computer screen, right? To, to get what it takes to actually get out there and get the job and get the qualifications. Um, so I think people are going to be a lot more accustomed to online learning. I think too, you know, you mentioned Amazon and Google. There are some private businesses that are really stepping up the way I see it and providing those transformative uh, solutions and breaking the mold like Praxis, which I'm sure you're familiar with. They're a group that is an alternative to college. You know, it's apprenticeship based. So the idea is you go in, you pay the tuition, you get trained up for six months, you do a, maybe a one year apprenticeship. Uh, and by the end of that apprenticeship, uh, if you succeed, you will have earned back the tuition that you paid into Praxis in the first place, right? So it's kind of like a, a wrinkle in time of getting you from uh, you know, the classroom into the job you want rather than having to do the four years of college and all the debt. Um, these programs are out there. And you know, with, with good marketing and good word of mouth, we can make people realize that, hey, the, the four-year university model is not the only way to go. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you one more thing before we let you go. You touched in it on your piece. Uh, I'm a lower level guy. I think lower level is a good way to start with a solution. Maximizing people's own money for college. We talked about how ridiculously expensive it is, but there is some ways we can practically let people do it. You talked about 529 investments. Um, I've got a daughter that's got a 529. She got it from the uh, do it for baby dog COVID vaccination program of all the things. Uh, but I mean, it's a fantastic thing. It's a large amount of money. It's in a 529 actually draws interest. She earned money on it before she even started cracking it for her college stuff. What would it take to do some, just some basic regulatory form? Because the truth of the matter is these 529s are wonderful tools. There's a lot of IRS restrictions and gatekeeping on how the money can get into them, get out of them. There could be some regulatory fixes here that just lets people use their own money more effectively in higher education, isn't there? Absolutely. Well, the two main ones you have are 529s and then something called a Coverdale ESA. Both of them, you're able to put money in and get some tax benefits, able to draw that money tax-free when it's time to pay for college. But the problem is there's all these hidden rules built in. Like in the 529s, you can't invest in most mutual funds or ETFs or individual stocks. It has to be these pre-approved sets of investment options. In the Coverdale ESAs, you can take more risk with the range of uh, you know investment portfolio options, but you can only give $2,000 a year. So why these are there, uh, I, I think the burden of proof is to, on the other person to tell me why they're there in terms of why we shouldn't be able to take greater risks you know, with, with funding and education, especially when the government has jacked up the price so much. But if you just remove some of those barriers, you let people invest in cryptocurrency and in individual stocks, you remove the $2,000 cap, you know, let people take risks with their own money that they have earned. Clearly, the government doesn't know how to manage money well for $30 trillion in debt. Social Security is going insolvent. Who are they to tell the American citizen, actually, we need to help you make sure you don't lose your money? Uh, seems kind of ridiculous to me. And if you never heard of the Coverdales, they're kind of, think IRA. You can only put X amount of money into them. That's sort of the model that was based on of. All right, Sean, one last question for you. Uh, I know we talked about this. This is a loud issue. It's probably going to get louder, especially if uh, President Biden takes action on it. Let's assume he does this $10,000 proposal and just basically nobody's happy with it. What's the next phase of this debate, do you think? Yeah, well, it really depends who is in power, right? If this mobilizes, you know, uh, right of center turnout, 
and you've got the Democrats losing because they gave $10,000. I don't see the Republican Party when they control the House and Senate letting any kind of uh, student loan debt relief pass through, right? But if something wild happens and this mobilizes more Democratic turnout because they say, hey, they didn't go far enough, you vote for us, we're actually going to push Biden to do more, right? Then you have a, a long shot chance of this being the stepping stone to full debt relief, right? Either way, let's remember, it's not fair to rob Peter to pay Paul, right? People took out those loans. They can pay them off more than about half of everyone who took out student loans has paid them off. This is not some impossible task to consider. Personal responsibility, fiscal responsibility go a long way, right, in terms of developing you know, the citizens we like to see today, and we can't afford it. So no relief should be given. We should focus our energy on reforming this system, make it easier for people to get out of the debt, and for that debt to not even be a possibility in the first place. I think that's how you get to a fairer system, a more sustainable system, and one that isn't built on just political appeal to uh, staying in office. Yeah, Sean Tima joining us. We also need to point out here, uh, this executive action will very definitely wind up in court as well, because there's some legalities on how much they can actually do here. So we need to mention that as well. Uh, Sean Tima, thank you so much for the time talking student loan debt. Let folks know where they can follow you, your writing and your social media and whatever else you have going on until we talk to you again. Absolutely. We can follow me on Twitter at Liberty Sean. And you can follow all the great work that uh, Young Americans for Liberty is doing at, at YA Liberty, one L. And uh, his piece is in the American Spectator. We will link to it in the show notes so you can read it for yourself. Sean, thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it, sir. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll talk again soon. Flavia Nunez joining us. Um, you just mentioned it, so let's just go there. Um, there's no ducking that this is a business model for a lot of people, including the schools, including others. That debt you're taking on, you talked about that narrow window from the time you do your FAFSA, you get your acceptance letter, you've got a very small window to decide whether you're going to do debt or not. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure because now you've gotten in, are you going to go, that sort of thing. These are. This is an age group. Um, you're taking on debt. They would not give you a car loan at that age with your background. They're not going to give you a house loan. They're not going to give you probably any loan of any kind. And yet you're allowed to take out student loan debt. People accuse it. I've used this terminology, too, that because the entire K through 12 system is designed to be a funnel to higher education in America now, this seems very, very predatory. Is there any other way to describe that, especially when you start talking about the realities of that narrow window where the kids have to decide that, considering this is the only kind of loan of this version that they would be allowed to get legally and yet we let uh, student loans for these young people go it feels predatory it looks predatory and then when you start looking backwards through the student loan debt crisis it really doesn't seem fair to the kids or anybody else am i missing anything there or is that a fair way to adjust that i mean i do believe that that's a word that can be used because a lot of students like i said they're 17 they're 18 but they, when they think college, they think, oh, my God, I'm going to be free. I'm uh, not really going to have pressure from my parents anymore. I'm going to have a lot of this independence. And there's also this, this ranking list and the, the idea of prestige and how much prestige counts for. 
So there is a lot of pressure, most definitely. I mean, there's also pressure from from family figures as well because the FAFSA and um, the other financial aid applications cost money in and of themselves. I mean, personally, I paid close to $1,000 in financial aid applications. So almost when you get back your financial aid offer and it is not as much as you were expecting or little as is willing for you to be able to pay that amount, you kind of are stuck in a zone where you don't know what to do because you've already invested the time in applying, but also know that with that amount of financial aid, you're not really going to get for the FAFSA itself, there's a lot of, there are two kinds of aid that you can get. Grants that you don't have to pay back and loans that you do. Grants are the best kinds of scholarships because it's essentially, um, counselors call it free money. It's a scholarship money that you're given to just study. But loans, you do have to pay back. Uh, sometimes even though they're subsidized, it is difficult. I and mean, when you're just starting, when you're, when you're expected to pay when you graduate, when you're just starting life, you you find difficulty, not just looking for a job, but looking for a living situation. It is, I would say, to a certain level, a business model that has worked in the past. Usually um, a couple of years ago, I don't remember the exact date, but admission cycles would be much earlier in the year. And so students had a much broader window for to see their financial aid offer and call the financial aid office and appeal for a new decision. There used to be a broader window, but that isn't really, as you can tell, as profitable for colleges. So that window was moved to this month long um, process. For me personally, I did appeal um, a couple financial decisions, but uh, sometimes it's not even the financial aid officers who are at fault because they are truly trying to help you. But a lot of it is just equations that are that are stuck. So you, your family makes a certain amount of money. This is a certain amount of aid you're going to get, no matter where that money is inputted or exactly how financially able you are to pay for that money. I think the root of the problem really is the large amount of money that college costs these days. I mean, it's an amount that is so large for an intangible object. I don't really think that there is anything that costs as much because at least for housing, um, I mean, a house costs an exorbitant amount of money, but it's a physical property that you're going to get. You know exactly what's gonna happen right off the bat. For education, it's an investment in your mind, in yourself, but you never really know how that's gonna turn out. Yeah, Flavia Nunez joining us. This is why I wanted to discuss this before we get into the numbers and break that down, because that's the part everybody focuses on. They don't focus on the people problem aspect of this. So everything we just said, talking about it being somewhat predatory, talking about the business model contracting it down, there's more and more money, there's more and more pressure to get more money, that shrinks the windows. Everything you just said, one of the largest vocal critics of student loan debt forgiveness is the folks that say, well, it's personal responsibility, nobody made you sign the loan. I understand that. I agree with that in principle. But how do you put a human face on that, too? Because like we said, th this is an age group that wouldn't get a loan for anything other than this. Where do you balance that out? Because, yes, you have personal responsibility, but this isn't happening in a vacuum. This is happening in a sequence of events where there's a lot of pressure put on these very young people to take on this debt. 
What do you think the ratio of personal responsibility to the system is here? I feel, yes, there is some level of personal responsibility because nobody is ever pointing a gun at your head saying, take on this loan or else. Um, so it is your um, decision and you are technically an adult because most people take on this loan at 18. Some people are not. Some people take on this loan at 17 or some people go to college at 16. But at the same time, you are making this decision when your frontal lobe isn't really developed yet either. Um, so I mean, you can't drink until you're 21 and yet you can take on hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that will affect your life starting at this young age. So I feel like personal responsibility is definitely a factor, but it, like you said, it is this, some, there's definitely somebody taking advantage here in a way that we've seen throughout history. I mean, there's always going to be somebody who pays for a service. And uh, in this case, the service is one that a lot of students don't really know. I mean, what you when you're 18, what you've lived is barely anything at all. You don't really know what it is to be an adult yet. You've lived with your parents or, or, or parental figures. And so you're off in a new place, um, worrying about, let's say, doing your laundry for the first time or doing the dishes, maybe not for the first time, but definitely on your own. And just you don't really realize how much money it is to take on at such a young age and how much time you'll be paying it back. And so you depend on other people a lot of the time to tell you what to do because you respect older figures. So um, it really depends on the people also that you're surrounded with. Responsibility also lies on them. So I feel like for those who are saying that it is, uh, I guess, it is the fault of whoever signed the loan, I understand, but at the same time, it's the influence around that person and the institutions who have this model going forward. How much does that um, ratio change when you start talking about a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old, that age group that's going to do grad school or post-grad school or doctorate work, things like that? Does that calculus start to change a little bit as you get more older? Like you said, those are younger people. These are people that are more established in the world know a little bit more they've gone through the undergrad process so they know the machinery of it you know because college is a machine you're a cog in it that's just what it is does that calculus change for those folks because they're the ones that have the ability and a little bit more platform a little bit more noise to make noise about things like student loan forgiveness that we hear from more often yeah most definitely i feel like for undergraduate there's a lot of more options if you don't want to take on debt um, there are a lot of uh, community colleges available there are a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but there are some scholarships specifically for undergraduate students who are not financially able to pay and some scholarships that are just fully merit-based. Um, there is there's a lot more leeway for undergrads than there are for graduate students, I feel. And while some undergraduate students have their debt paid for by the employers they're gonna work with if they work with them after a certain time, a lot of graduate students, I feel, are left with no choice. They really do have to take on this loan, um, or if not, they won't be able to do the things that they necessarily want to do. Uh, be a researcher, work in academia, become a lawyer, become a doctor. But the logic behind that is that the that it's much it's a much bigger debt to take on graduate school. 
because it's a much bigger degree. Um, it gives you a lot more uh, credibility in your area. And uh, it's definitely what right now some lawmakers are trying to limit. Um, it's this, uh, I forgot the name, but the abbreviation is real. And it's this act put forward by congressional lawmakers that most likely will not be passed because it is conservative in nature at this moment. But it limits grad student loans because that is such a big portion of the $1.7 trillion that we are currently facing today. Yeah, Flavia Nunez joining us. We're going to get into those numbers like she just mentioned. She's got a great piece about why the pause in student debt won't fix the problem. We're also going to talk about the pauses coming off from the COVID age and the abatements. That's all coming to end. What's that means? More with Flavia Nunez right after this on Herzog. All right, here we go. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Flavia. We're talking student loan uh, debt forgiveness, but also how that debt comes, trying to put a human face on it, not just talking the numbers of it. You've got a great piece up about at the chalkboard review about pausing student debt won't fix the problem. We understand during the COVID age, um, they pause student debt. Right now, the official listing for how much student debt is over 90 days is only at 5%, but that's a false number. And it's a false number because they paused everything. That pause is getting ready to come off. The COVID era funding is getting ready to come off. Practically speaking, what is that going to mean? Come so right now, um, Biden uh, has promised to announce a permanent solution for uh, this $1.7 trillion problem. So because the student pause has been, it started during the Trump administration, it's been uh, extended seven times for over two years. So as it's set to end this August, there's a lot of pressure on the White House to make a definite statement about student loan cancellation, which they ran on during the elections. So his plan right now is to cancel $10,000 per every eligible uh, borrower. When I mean plan, I mean this is what has been discussed, what has been hinted at, but nothing has officially been said. He wants to cancel $10,000 per eligible borrower, which is anybody making, I believe, less than $150,000 a year. When that happens, there's, as you can guess, a lot of contention whether this is a good idea or a bad mistake. But at the same time, it, this idea lacks support from both sides of the aisle um, cancellation on a broad scale is not really seen as acceptable by the right and is not really enough. $10,000 is not enough for the left to be able, they believe, to make everybody who has student loan debt uh, stand on an equitable basis. So I feel as if the decisions right now at a standstill, Biden promised to have answers by April, but that that didn't necessarily happen. He promises to have answers by August. That could or could not happen. If it does, the Education Department has already a plan in place. Uh, leaked documents show that they have plans to expand borrower defense to repayment, 
um, and really streamline the process of broad cancellation for more and more students. What that means is we can't really necessarily say or know, but taxpayers will be taking the brunt of it as this, these loans are funneled through taxpayer dollars that are expected to be repaid to the government. And when they're no longer repaid, it's just the people that foot the bill are not ones who have a say in the game. And the pressure on them, because let's be adults here. We understand what's going on. We've talked about the postgraduate debt being kind of a separate beast from the undergrad debt. That class of folks, predominantly, we don't want to get too much here, but predominantly it's going to be a different class of people than some of the undergrads that are taking on debt. These are people that have more influence. These are people that are more established in their careers probably. They're probably in a little bit different social standings. That affects this, right, because one of the criticisms of wide student loan debt is what you talked about earlier. The postgraduate debt is a different beast than the undergraduate debt. It's a different group of people who is it. But that's also the group that's got, you know, the political power and the social media platforming and the media platforming, because let's be honest, the media, almost all of them are um, college graduates and that sort of thing. Is that where this pressure is really coming from or is it more organic than that? No, most definitely. I feel like it would be a little naive to think that those who are pushing forward, who are making a student debt cancellation, a broader topic, a broader point of discussion, don't have a personal say in the game. It is very likely that those who want student debt to be canceled have a lot of student debt themselves. And very likely that those who don't want student debt to be canceled do not have a lot of their own. Um, so while you could stand on each topic as like let's say a political view or an ideological view, like you're just against um, having the government play a broader role. And so because you lean typically conservative or you just want better welfare because you lean typically left. There is, I feel as with a lot of things, but especially with the student debt crisis, a personal uh, reason to be involved because if you fight on, let's say if you, really expand this topic on and, and have a large voice, a large journalistic voice on social media or in the media itself and are able to reach more people or reach lawmakers or influence the Biden administration in any way, you have the, you stand to gain a lot in terms of how much, let's say, student debt you will not have anymore after that moment. And there's a lot of, you, you lose, you're gonna lose hard or you're gonna gain a lot. It could be an organic thing because $1.7 trillion is not something that can be ignored in any capacity. But I do feel like there is a lot of personal motivation in the conversation. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
We've been talking mostly, we, and I did it on purpose. We wanted to start with the personal side of this because this gets real buzzwordy, real gets real sloganistic. But you and in your piece, we're linking to it as always. Please read the piece in its full at Chalkboard Review. We've got the links in the show notes. Um, we've got to deal with the root cause, which is about as impersonal as you get. The institutional structure of how all this is designed. And you touched on it in your piece. The root problem with the student loan crisis is also the root problem with education, higher education in general. The astronomical cost uh, college is four times easily more expensive than it was 50 years ago. It's mostly administrative cost, infrastructure cost, those kind of costs that are driving this charge. That's the root cause. Is there anything at all to be done about that? Because as long as that beast needs fed, they're going to be looking at student loans and the financial system as the way to do it, right? Oh, no, for sure. I mean, if student loans are canceled and you set a precedent uh, for that kind of cancellation, then and they're promptly offered with less requirements, then colleges will only have an incentive to raise prices more because they realize that loans are more available to students and students are more likely to take them on with the expectation that they will be canceled. So these astronomical costs of college really started after 1978, after the Middle, Middle Income Student Assistance Act of 1978. They, um, it made subsidized student loans much more broader. They, it, it, it made them much more available to other students. And so you saw this astronomical rise in prices simply because, again, colleges will still have consumers willing to pay for it because now they have this money available to them that is easily accessible, even though that money isn't technically their own. So these astronomical costs of college are, um, now that I, I started college, I didn't really understand before. I don't think you really can until you sit in the classroom and realize, okay, my tuition doesn't cover this class. It covers um, campus health. It covers uh how much mental health services on campus. It covers all the recreational services, the gym, the conference rooms, the libraries. And this question, I mean, this is just a theory of where the money is going. We don't really know because institutions are not required to disclose that information. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.